0: We are we are in uh, one, uh, one of one of those climactic points in the in the Gospel of Matthew. There there are three there are three big discourses, three big teaching uh, times that Jesus has that are recorded in the Gospels. Those are the Sermon on the Mount, and that's three chapters early in Matthew. And then there's the upper room discourse, which is uh, there in the upper room after the, after the Lord's table is initiated, the Passover meal that Jesus shares with his, his disciples. And that upper room discourse actually carries out out across the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. And, that, and that's found in John chapter 13 through chapter 16, and then leads into that prayer, chapter 17. The third major teaching d- d- discourse, where Jesus has an intend- uh, extended time of teaching his disciples, his followers, is the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because it, 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 it occurs on the Mount of Olives. And it starts out as Jesus, in this... Um, um, uh, 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 approaching uh, approaching the time when he's going to be arrested, approaching the time when he's going to be crucified, and he's been telling his disciples that that is coming. He's in this final week, and... He and his disciples have just been in the temple precincts, in the temple area, in the courtyards, and he's been teaching there, and he's, and he's going away from there. They've just come out of some of those um, confrontations that we talked about last week, and as they leave the temple area, the disciples are just fascinated by what they see here. They have been seeing the temple and the complex and the buildings, and they're saying, wow, Jesus, did you see the building? Did you see the temple? Isn't this fantastic? And their eyes are on the, on, on the building in, in, in Matthew 24. They're leaving the temple, and they say, wow. And Jesus answers them. A bit unexpected. They expect him to go, yes, yes, it is. It's a fantastic building, and it's a testimony to the glory of God. This is the house of prayer to all nations. This is the place where God dwells with his people, and Jesus doesn't say any of that. Instead, he says... Do you see all of these things? Do you see this? Do you see the temple itself? You see the, the inner court there with the altars? You see these other porches or porticoed or columned uh, porches with a covered roof, places where the rabbis would teach their disciples, where Jesus would teach? You see the open court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations where, where, the, where the world was to come and gather and pray? He says, All of these things, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. This will not last. Wow. That was not what the, what the disciples were, were um, expecting to hear, that these things are not going to last. And so, as they, as they move from there, they go out the eastern gate, right out in front, of the, in front of the temple. They go across the Kidron Valley. They go up to the Mount of Olives, and from the Mount of Olives, you have a beautiful view of the temple and from that temple actually i think I, I think i had another picture i had a picture of those stones i think didn't i yeah not one stone you know you can go to jerusalem today and you can still see at the base of the temple mount at the base of that big retaining wall that makes the top of the temple mount f- a flat table surface those are not stones in that in that big retaining wall that also forms also forms the western wall by the way those are not stones from the temple but from the big retaining wall that forms the platform, the ground on which the temple was built. And and on, down, down at the street level, at the base of that wall, that big retaining wall, which was a big marketplace in the first century, you can still see the stones that were pushed over from the top, the stones that were pushed over when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. You can still sit among that rubble even today. It's it's an ongoing testimony to the fact that Jesus' words, initially what he talked about, about these stones aren't going to be left, is still true. They were not left, not one stone upon another. Don't Don't think of that retaining wall. The Western Wall is a contradiction to that because that retaining wall, the Western Wall, was not a wall of the temple. Those were simply retaining wall. It was not stones of the temple itself. The stones of the temple were all taken down. It was completely destroyed. Okay, so then Jesus is, 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 is gathered with the disciples, more in private now, across the valley from the Mount of Olives. And as they overlook Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, it's a beautiful view, and the right in front of you would have been, now you see the Dome of the Rock. There you see the Dome of the Rock, very prominent. But, but then you would have seen, very prominently, you would have seen the, uh, the, the whole temple complex. And the, and the disciples are, 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 are curious about this. They're realizing, again, that he's talking about a, a cataclysmic events that will precede his coming. It's starting to sink in that he's going to be going away, and so they ask this question. As they sat on the Mount of Olives in verse 3 of chapter 24, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things be? When is that going to happen? First of all, when's the temple going to be destroyed? What's, what, what, when's that? that that's going to be a big deal. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of two big events? The sign of your coming and the sign of the close or the end of this age. So this present age, this present uh, age of the Gentiles, the age of the nations, when Israel is not the kingdom Israel, Israel is not ruling the world, Israel is not enjoying the, uh, the prosperity of a Davidic dynasty. No, they are a, a country under subjection to Rome. Before that, it was Greece. Before that, it was Medo-Persia. Before that, it was Babylon. When will this time end when Israel again will be lifted up? A Davidic king will sit on the throne and rule the world from Israel. When will that age begin? That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on earth. When is that going to happen? And what can we look for to know when you are coming? And Jesus answers these questions He doesn't tell them specifically when it's going to be on the calendar, but he does give a very specific answer. In fact, did you know there is one particular sign? People write books about the signs of the times. Those are books that sell, by the way. A book about preaching like the prophets, nah, make enough for a for a latte maybe off a book like that, but, but, but a book about the, what are the signs of the times, things that we see happening now that mean Jesus is coming, oh boy, that'll sell. Did you know there is one sign that Jesus gives, a very, very clear one. This is how you will know that he is coming. It's very clear. It's very specific. Do you know what it is? We'll see. It's going to be unfolded for us right here in chapter 24 of the, of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see how will we know when Jesus is coming, and secondly, what difference does it make? Because Jesus is coming. That is certain from what he says here. And so if Jesus is coming, then disciples, those who follow him, if Jesus is coming, disciples, get going. Let's get going. Let's, let's do. He, he, he follows with chapter 25, the rest of 24 and 25 with what difference does it make? What ought to we do then in light of the assured reality of his return? Let's pray. Father, would you give us clarity this morning? Would you, would you assure in our own hearts, not just a head knowledge from your word about some, some interesting fact about our Lord's return, but, Lord, would you press that into our heart? Would you press it in, in such a way that we can step forward in it, Lord, that that, that hope, that confidence, that assurance, Lord, would strengthen our faith? Lord, would, would strengthen how we live, how our light shines in the midst of this present darkness? Lord, would you strengthen our hearts, Lord, and then, and then challenge us, press us a little bit? Lord, help us in, in the direction of the next step that we would take in, in being faithful while we wait for your return. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. What, what are the signs? So Jesus answers them in, in, in Matthew 24 from verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. There's all kinds of answers to this. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, false Christ. They will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For the nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. All these are just the beginning. It's not yet. But what do birth pangs tell you? Now, I asked this question, but a lot of the ladies are, are, are away at the retreat, but, but there are some of you here, you know the answers to this, right? When you have birth pangs, that means something is coming. I mean, something is about to happen, right? And, and if you already knew it's a boy then I can can stretch this even further. The sun is coming, right? When the birth pangs begin to happen, you know it might be a while. In fact, goodness, sometimes labor stretches on, right? Sometimes it goes on for not only hours, but it can go on for days. It can go on way too long. And that's what we're thinking sometimes about the Lord's return. How long? How long can this go on? How long can this continue? And yet... He is coming. So these are birth pangs. These are the beginning. And then 9 to 14. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death. They will, you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then there will, there will be many that fall away, and they betray one another. They hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There will be a growing a growing lawlessness, and a decreasing love. The opposite of love would be self-centeredness. I heard somebody say on the radio just the other day that we, we, um, we were made to love people and use things, and too often we love things and use people. There's an increasing lawlessness. I want to do what I want to do. I don't answer to anybody else. And, and with that, a decreasing love. The love of many will grow Cold. And those two are related, it says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom, during this time of increasing lawlessness and decreasing love, during that time the gospel still will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end t- shall come. The one thing Jesus talks about, that his disciples are engaged in, in the midst of difficult times, and by the way, these difficult times that are described here, that is the norm for Christianity in the world for the last 200 years. Our experience of that is a little bit different. Our experience of that is in, 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 in America flows out of the Reformation. So the American experience is post-Reformation, when, when the gospel light was shining a little brighter all of a sudden. And then there were these great awakening revivals in America, in the in the early church in America. And our society benefited from that in ways that are hard for us to really fully quantify. But the American church experience by and large has not been one of tribulation and persecution and of being hated for his name's sake, but that is the norm for the church through the world. If you want to just get a taste of that now and again, go, go, not now, not on your phone right now, but later go to Voice of the Martyrs and just find out what's happening in the world among Christians. And in a country after country, a lot of hardship and a lot of suffering just because they believe in Jesus. Jesus. That's normal. So don't feel like we're getting such a bad shake of it here. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that persecution, the one thing he's given us to do is to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, to proclaim the gospel to all nations. Okay. So those are the things that are going to be happening, and he hasn't yet gotten to a sign. And then he says, so... Then the end will come. The the gospel is proclaimed, and then, he doesn't say yet when, but then, after that, the end will come. There is an end of this age coming. Remember, their questions were, what is the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? And he answers the end of the age one first. This is the sign, the sign that you know the end of the age is upon us. He said, so verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and this is the only place I know where this occurs in the Bible, is in the Olivet Discourse, when he mentions this abomination that makes desolate. An abomination of desolation, he says, that was spoken by Daniel, so it's back in the book of Daniel. Let the reader understand. Know what I'm talking about here, he says. Don't just roll past that phrase. I'm not sure what that means. That's kind of a strange phrase. And just keep going. That's the key to it all because that's the sign. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, if you have cross-references in your Bible, you'll notice there's probably three. There's probably a reference to Daniel chapter 9, to Daniel chapter 11, and to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11 are especially important. In Daniel 9:27, 27, he, uh, there is mentioned that in the 70th week, in the last seven-year period of God's dealing with Israel before the Messiah returns and establishes the kingdom of God, in that last seven-year period, we know is the Great Tribulation, there is going to come on many other abominations. He says there's going to be one that makes desolate that the, the man of sin, the Antichrist, is going to establish an image of himself within the temple, and he's going to cause that image of himself to be worshipped. Now, it's mentioned again in Daniel chapter 11 when that very kind of thing happens with a with a ruler from the Greece empire actually out of Syria called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He, he, he actually comes to the temple, he desecrates the temple, he slaughters swine on the altar, he forces, under penalty of death, priests to compromise their faith and participate in these unclean sacrifices to desecrate the temple, and then he has a statue of Zeus put in the temple, and he says, this is your God, this is the God that you will now worship in the temple in Jerusalem. That was the abomination of desolation that... Daniel 9 describes, yet it's not the completion of it. Antiochus was the closest thing we've seen on earth to Antichrist himself, but it's still coming. And Paul refers to the same thing in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 3, verses 3 and 4, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. for that day, the coming day of the Lord, it will not come unless the rebellion or the falling away or the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul says it's still coming It's still going to happen. And the day of the Lord will not happen. The Lord's return will not happen until that happens first. Okay, That's where we're at. That's what he's describing. So when Jesus says, when you see that happen, you know the end of the age has come. You know that the end of life on earth as we know it is approaching. This is going to be, that's going to occur in the middle of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation, halfway through, for those of you that have studied some end times, the halfway through, that's going to happen, and then all hell is going to break loose on earth. And it's going to be a terrible time. It's going to be the darkest time. It's going to be a time of tribulation since has never happened on the earth before. During that period. And he says, those who are in the city flee. Jesus gives instructions. He says, pray that it doesn't come on the Sabbath because you're going have a much more difficult time getting transportation. Pray that you're not a woman who is pregnant or with small child at the time because that's going to slow down your flight and you need to run for your lives when this happens. It's going to be a terrible, awful, bloody time in Jerusalem in particularly, but from then upon the earth as a whole. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, since has not been seen from the beginning of the world. The worst that you can imagine, the worst that you've read about in history will be multiplied during this period. Think about it this way. The darkest time that human history will see is not a time to despair that God has completely cast us aside. The darkest time of human history is a time when you can know with a certainty because you've seen the definitive sign that the end is at hand and Jesus is near. I think you can apply that a little further away in the midst of difficult times. Difficult times easily cause us to despair, cause us to lose hope. What is God doing? Why is this happening? When they should simply confirm God's word. I was visiting somebody in the hospital recently. I said, you know, you're confirming God's word. So, said, what do you mean? Well, the Bible tells us that the outer man perishes, and yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. And this was a person of hope in the midst of trouble. I said, you know, the Bible tells us this mortality isn't fit. It cannot last. This mortality must put on immortality. That this corruptible must put on incorruption. And so when we experience the falling apart, you're asking, what's happened? Normal normal, fallenness, brokenness, you're confirming that God's word is true. That puts a whole new spin on all your aches and pains, doesn't it? Well, that's helpful. You are simply a testimony and a witness that God's word. Try that on somebody at work next time you're talking and they are like, oh, man, my back. What's the matter? Oh, I'm just confirming that God's word is true. This body is falling apart just like God said. Well, that's a different spin on it. They haven't heard that entrance before, I bet. Try it. You can use that for free. You don't have to mention me at all. All right. So this terrible time, and and there's this particular sign. He says, and run, and they're going to say that the Christ is here, the Messiah is there, false prophets are going to rise up, and they're going to lead many astray. He says, I've told you before. I've told you beforehand it's going to be like this. So if they say to you, look, the the Christ is in the wilderness, don't go there. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The coming of the Son of Man is going to come with a sign that everybody's going to see. You won't have to go here or go there to see some small miracle. No, no. Everybody on the earth. When the lightning flashes, think of the biggest bolt of lightning you've ever seen. Did you have to be at, in one end of the neighborhood in order to see it? Did you have to even be on one side of town in order to see it? No, it lights small fireworks that are down low. Yeah, if you're not close enough to the fort on the 4th of July, you won't see them. But something way up there across the sky, you can see it all across town, right? Right? It lights up the whole sky. Everybody sees it. That's what he's saying. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like. What's it going to be? Are you waiting? Are you wondering? What is this? Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation, at the end of that tribulation, the end of that seven-year tribulation period, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. You can go into the end of the book of Revelation. You can see how these things happen. And the bold judgments are poured out and the sun goes dim and the moon doesn't give its light. and These things are happening because of the judgments at the end of the tribulation period. But Jesus picks it up at the end. After the tribulation, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in darkness here on the earth. The moon will not give its light. The stars will have fallen from the heavens and the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. And people are wondering, what is coming next? And then will appear in heaven the sign. Here it is. Here it is, what you've been waiting for, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Imagine it this way. It is dark, dark, dark. It's the darkest of night. There is no moon. There are no stars. It is dark, dark, dark. It's almost so dark you could touch it. And then there's this light. And at first, from way out there, it looks like, is it landing lights? It's, it's, it's a big glow in the sky. And it's bigger than the moon would be. And it's, and it's brighter. And it's, it seems to be getting bigger and coming closer. And it must be aliens from outer space or something. Well, it seems alien to us but it is the Shekinah glory of God. It is the risen Son and Savior coming in all of his glory and he lights up the heavenly sky as that glory approaches and as the earth continues its rotation so that as the earth turns around from the direction that the the sun is coming, everybody gets a chance before his arrival, everybody on earth gets a chance to see him coming, to see that glory as it lights up up that darkened sky, and the sun is returning. That's S O N, not S U N. The Son of God coming in His glory in the midst of the darkest of earth and the darkness over humanity. The risen Savior Himself appears, and it's not all just suddenly in that bam—it's darkness to light, and we're all blinking. No, no, there is the terror. Among, the, among this rebellious planet of that glory approaching nearer and nearer and nearer. And as they make their last futile plans to make a final stand, that's described in Revelation 19, but everyone will see his coming. So don't be mistaken by little things. Don't be drawn aside by minor miracles here and there. Jesus is coming and he will not be missed. Okay? Now I told all of that to tell you these things, and we are really going to have to hurry on these. After, the, after he lays that out, after he describes, this is what it's going to be like, this is what my coming will look like, this is how you'll know. You're going to see this happen in the temple. You'll know the end of the age, and three and a half years after that, it's going to be dark and the glory will be coming, and, and, so, and know that when you see that abomination of desolation, those who are still on the earth at that time, when they see that, know that his coming is near. And it's going to happen. Well, knowing that he's coming, and knowing that we might be way back and still in the beginning of birth pangs, that we're not in that tribulation period. We're not seeing the the abomination of desolation, but we know that he's coming. But as the years go by, honestly, can't we lose sight of that? Can't we be easily distracted and busy about many other things? And he gives a series of parables to his disciples to tell them things they need to know in light of the, the certainty of Jesus' coming. He's going away, but he is coming. And he gives several, several parables that I want to go through, one after another, very quick. There are seven of them. I laid these out in your notes. I, I, I described each one. And the first is this. Remember, disciples need to know this, first of all, that history is headed toward hope. History is headed toward the realization of our hope. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but it will happen. He says, learn from the fig tree. As its branch becomes tender, it puts out its leaves. You know that summer is near. So when you see these kind of things happening, it tells you that summer is near. It tells you that the sun is near. It tells you that his coming is going to happen. When you see the world falling apart, don't think, Oh, my goodness, the world's falling apart. When you see the world falling apart, say, Oh, my goodness, Jesus is coming. That just didn't move you at all. When your body is falling apart, Say, oh my goodness, my body's falling apart. What am I going to do? Say, oh my goodness, my body's falling apart. Immortality is coming closer. Right? Heaven is nearer. Looking at some of you, heaven is near. Right? (laughs) I'm feeling it more and more every day. Heaven is near. If Jesus doesn't come, I will go. So the fig tree, these kind of things happening, they shouldn't discourage you. They should tell you that your hope is going to be realized. Secondly, don't let normalcy Lead to complacency. Don't let normalcy. don't let things just continue as they are. Isn't that what they, what they describe in Peter? Haven't, hasn't things continued since the beginning of creation till now? No, they forget that God already sent a flood, a flood. God already dramatically intervened in human history, and he'll do it again. God has intervened. God will intervene. Concerning that day or the hour, no man, no man knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but the Father only. As was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Those are not signs of Jesus' coming. The fact that you see people eating and drinking, the fact that you see people marrying and being given in marriage, those are, not, those are signs of normal, everyday life. But don't let the normalcy lull you into complacency. Don't let that convince you that things will just continue on as they've always been, because they will not. For they were unaware until the day that Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And in that swept them all away, he said, that's going to happen to people around you. People you know. People in your extended family. People you work with in the field. Or at the mill or wherever else else it is that you work some of those people are going to be swept away when he comes verse 40 two will be in the field one will be taken and one will be left and the one who is taken is taken away swept away by the flood and that's made clear in Luke chapter 17 when Jesus says the same thing and and they're going to be taken and the disciples say where and Jesus says where the corpses are, there the eagles will gather. That's a strange place, but they're going to be taken away to judgment. They're going to be taken away to where the corpses are. They're going to be taken away to that valley of Gehenna, where they would carry out the dead bodies. They're going to be taken away in judgments. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. What is he telling his disciples? He's telling his disciples, find out if those around you are coming with you, because some of them will not. Some of them will be taken away in judgment. And it will happen suddenly. It will be too late. Future judgment is coming before it's expected, whether it comes in in unexpected death or whether it comes in the Lord's unexpected return. But it is coming faster than any of us realize. It's like the... um, me described a tombstone, an epitaph written on a gravestone and it said, I saw this coming but not yet we don't know, we don't know how much time anybody has if there are people that you're around are those you're around coming with you And then he goes to verse 42. He talks about a faithful master of a house and a wise servant. And both of these tell tell the same thing. Be ready, be busy about the things you should do in light of his coming. The wise servant in particular is contrasted against an evil and wicked and unfaithful servant. The faithful servant is busy knowing his master is going to return. He's busy about the things his master gave him to do in the meantime. He was given supplies in order to feed the rest of the household, to take care of the needs of the household while his master was away. And he's to devote himself to doing that. The wicked servant instead, he says, he's not coming anytime soon. I might as well do what I want. And he mistreats the other servants. And he rather uses those resources on himself and he parties and lives it up to serve himself. The one who realizes his master is coming, he's going to be faithful about his business, the business of his master, he uses those resources to take care of others. But the wicked servant who blows off and the master's coming, he's not coming anytime soon. I can do as I please. And he mistreats others and serves himself instead. You see the contrast. And yet the master does come. His master will come and he will find him so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set that faithful servant over all his possessions. But the wicked servant, he's going to judge. So he says, be faithful in what the master has given you to do. Let your hope, let your confidence of his, the certainty of his coming, let that fuel faithfulness rather than fear. You see, the, the faithful servant here is, is simply doing what he's supposed to do knowing that his, his master is coming. Now, this is, gonna, this is not really the best illustration of this because it turns things a little on its head, but since the ladies were away at the retreat, we knew it, that they would be returning, right, guys? Well, I sent Julie a text and I asked her, I said, Julie, when you return and come back to the home, do you want to come to the home and find it in a way where you really feel needed? (laughs) Or do you want to come back and find it in a way that you really feel appreciated and valued? You see, that could look two different ways, couldn't it? Yeah, I think you get the picture. And she replied back she wanted to feel appreciated and valued rather than needed. Yeah, so we had to hurry and scurry and get the house ready before she returned. Not because we were going to be in grand trouble, well, maybe we would anyway, but that wasn't what was in our heads. But we wanted her to feel appreciated. And so we did things while she was gone in anticipation of her return. It's something like that with our Lord we love him and so we want to do the things that please him that suit him that agree with him while he's not here because we know he's coming and he's going to be pleased that's going to delight his heart when he returns and that's what we want most of all then we come to the come to the maidens with their oil lamps and there's much you could say about that particular parable and one is, somebody share with me i don't really i've had trouble with this parable because the those ladies aren't sharing and shouldn't those that have oil share with the ones that don't? And the point is, they, there's not enough for them to give what they have to the others. Each one must get their own oil. And some of them cared for that and did so. Some of them got themselves ready for his return, and some of them were not. Some of them took it lightly, and they were not prepared as a result. Bottom line don't wait too late. Don't put off for later sometime. He's not coming soon. I'll worry about that another time. And you've heard that even concerning salvation, haven't you? Yeah, I'm going to give more attention to that at some point in the future, but not right now. But if that's true of salvation, don't put that off. What about something the Lord has set before you to do? Somebody he's set before you to talk to. Somebody he's set before you to invite. Somebody he's set before you to just show something of his grace, his love, his forgiveness to. There's a conflict that you're waiting on. I'm going to deal with that, but it's, it's ugly, it's messy. <laughs> I only want to touch it just yet. I want to dive sometime. Maybe it'll be easier in the future. If we put it off for a while, we just ignore it, maybe it'll go away. No. Don't put off those things. Don't wait too late. That's something that we can learn from the parable of the maidens and the oil lamps. And then finally, well, no, not quite finally. There's another uh, parable of the servants in chapter 25 and verse 14. Chapter 25 and verse 14, we come to the parable of the talents. And different ones are given different things. That's not unlike in the church. We're given different talents. We're given different gifts. we're We're given different abilities. What do we do with them? Some of them used those different abilities with differing results. And the the differing results were not the point. The fact that they used faithfully what had been entrusted to them and the Lord was pleased and the Lord rewarded them. And what they did with what God gave them here had a direct impact on what they did for their Lord into the kingdom. What you do now matters. The little thing you give yourself to matters. But there's one servant in that parable. There's one servant, when the master comes back, he'd been given one talent. And the one who had received the one talent, I'm I'm down in verse 24 of, of chapter 25, came forward, he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. "'reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. "'And so I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent. I buried it in the ground. "'Here you have what is yours.' "'But his master answered him, "'You wicked and lazy servant. "'You knew,' you say, "'that I reap where I had not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. "'Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. "'And my coming, I should have received what was mine at least with interests.'" Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has will more be given. For to everyone who, and he who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. Now, what's going on there with that unfaithful, worthless, wicked servant? He has a strange view of his master. This master is supposed to be an image of God. Is your image of God one that God is hard That God reaps where he did not sow? That God takes what is not his? He takes back from what he did not give? Well, that doesn't line up with the parable. Where did this servant even get that talent? He got it from the master. The master is not reaping what is not his. He's not reaping where he did not sow. He's coming back to reap from where he did sow. But the servant is a wicked servant because he has a skewed and twisted and faulty view of the master. Do you see where that's going? Easily around the world, there is a twisted and skewed and faulty view of God. A God who is angry with us. A God who is waiting for a reason to find fault with us. A God who, who will, will take joy in hammering us. And a God we fear and somehow try to appease with playing it safe and being careful. And he's judged based on his own version of who he believed God to be, who he believed the Master to be. He uses his own words right back against him, but they're the words of the servant. They are not words that describe the Master. The Master gave what was needed, the Master provided what he then sought a return from. The simple lesson from the, from the story is this. Invest what you have been given for what will remain. Invest what you've been given for eternity. Use what you have. Remember there, the parable that Jesus tells. He talks about use your present treasures to invite people into eternal dwelling places. Use what you have. Use what's in this life. Use, use, a, use a family dinner table to invite somebody else to that table that you might invite them to the Lord's table. Use whatever you have. It might be giving somebody a ride, whether it's in your car or on your bike. I don't know, but use whatever it is that we do have to make a difference that will last more into eternity. And finally, don't overlook the little things. Don't belittle the little things. Get to the point of of the sheep and the goats. And you know the difference in the story between the sheep and the goats? If you haven't read that before, it's at the end of chapter 25. But he commends his servants. And he says to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When? Did we see you hungry and and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it. You did it unto me. Don't overlook the little things. It's curious to me that these righteous servants, these these righteous, faithful disciples, in the midst of a broken world full of overwhelming needs, they met one here in front of them. And they didn't do it intentionally. This is Jesus before me. I better do this so that he'll be pleased. They did it because out of them spills mercy. Because God has poured his mercy in We need to be vessels of mercy. We need to be vessels of mercy in ways that we don't merely do things just because we have an end goal, an end game, an agenda. We do have an end goal, an end game. We do have an agenda. We want others to know the same Savior that we know because he gives life, because he gives peace, because he forgives guilt. We want to share that with others. And yet we will also show something of his love and his mercy and his grace by being loving, merciful, and gracious and forgiving to people around us because they desperately need to see that. They need to know who God really is rather than who they think him to be. Jesus' coming is not merely information about a future event to, for us to, uh, us to fix our fascination upon. Jesus's coming is rather something that ought to turn our hearts so toward the future that we like Jesus will give ourselves away in the present. Oh Lord, would you take our lives. Lord, would you let them be whatever you would have them to be. Father, would you would you mold us and shape us? Would you would you would you Would you make us into the kind of vessels that you would use? Lord, we know we have something in us of a servant that doesn't see you clearly. We have something in us of ones who would and could be selfish. We have something in us that we could be complacent. We could wait for another day. We could be easily lulled to sleep and allow ourselves to be distracted. But Father, would you make us would you would you raise our gaze that we would see more clearly the coming of our savior the certainty of our hope and because of that father we would freely we would give ourselves away fathers we receive this offering now those communication cards they have a they have a place where we would give ourselves in service even as we would give those resources that you've entrusted to us for your work and ministry. But Father, as we give this offering, indeed, would it be that we are presenting ourselves to you, however you would use us, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.